Good morning, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Happy Easter to everyone, as this one will be released on Easter Sunday. So those of you celebrating the holiday, hope you had a great one. All right, to kick this one off, we had a little bit of a scare this week, or I did. Went to rev up my computer. It was making some noises. As a matter of fact, I have to apologize for the last podcast, because although I didn't think I was able to filter out most of it, basically my computer was starting to go and it was whining. And I didn't realize it, but after I started editing the actual podcast out... I realized that you could actually hear the whining throughout the whole thing. The problem is sometimes I don't have my earphones on when I'm working, so I'm using my computer speakers, and that tends to it doesn't tend to draw out some of those background noises that I catch later on when I have the earphones on. So I put the earphones on, and it was bad. And it was tough to hear at first because my computer was still whining while I was doing the editing, so I almost missed it at first. I thought it was just my computer then. Anyway, so to make a long story short, I tried to filter it out. It seemed to work fairly well, but if for those of you who are listening, they're like, man, this really sounds like garbage. I apologize. The thing was done. I did the best I could. But anyway, the next morning, I... Got up bright and early, unplugged the whole computer, went to vacuum it out because last time this happened, there was some dust in the fans. And we do have four dogs in here. We vacuum constantly, but it can get dusty, especially this time of the year with the hair and the doggy dander, which is gross, but it's the truth. And so I took it out, basically vacuumed the whole thing, blew it out, plugged it back in. It ran for about two minutes and then shut down. So I did it again and vacuumed it again, just made sure I didn't miss any spots, plugged it in. It worked for about five minutes and then shut down. So I was like, this isn't good because unfortunately it was on my April break, my spring break from school, and I planned on getting a lot of work done with the podcasts and with the videos. My goal was to get a couple of each bank, banked up so that I could you know, consistently hit that once a week schedule, and that all went down the toilet. So I posted a Facebook message up just to let people know because what happens is I tend to take like a week off here and there, especially this time of year, and when I come back, people are like, oh, we're wondering where you were. And so Sometimes it's only been a week, so I thought this could be much longer, so I wanted people to just have a heads up, and I appreciate everybody's understanding. Everybody was like, yep, take all the time you need, so I do appreciate that. As it turns out, I was, well, basically I was very worried that I was going to need a new computer. I've had this one for a little while. We've had some issues with it. Last time I fixed it was the power source. I, I replaced that myself. I'd never done that. I was so proud. And this time was like, all right, we're going to have to bring it in and find out what's wrong with it, and it could mean we need a new computer. And right now we just basically bought new furniture for our living room. Our dogs rip our furniture apart. It's one of them grunts in the background. And it wasn't a good month for extra, you know, expenditures. So we brought it into a guy that Billy's uh, worked with years ago who does computers on the side, does computer repair, and he used to fix my computers back in the day. He saved, he saved me a couple times. And as it turned out, it wasn't a terribly big deal. Apparently my video card went. There were a couple other small issues. He fixed the computer, upgraded it a bit, and so now we're good to go. So again, I normally wouldn't throw something like this on Facebook, but it was to the point where I thought it could put me out of commission for quite some time. The irony of the whole thing was the night before I was actually working on my Patreon page. I know I promised a lot of people that I would do one this year, and I've been really trying to get some stuff up there and get it going and figure out my tiers. Again, not feeling particularly comfortable with the whole thing. However, this did drive home a point for me in the in the fact that if that computer had gone if it had broken down I would have kind of been in some trouble with trying to you know get the funds up at that short notice to get it fixed I would have gotten it fixed eventually Billy and I you know 
we, we do okay, but it's one of those deals where I wanted to get a nice editing computer because I do a lot of editing on this, and the one I have now, well, it's a little more beefed up now, but the way it was before is it sometimes couldn't handle when I would do longer videos or videos where I was trying to do several different cameras, and so eventually down the road, my thought was if anything I'm going to put some more money into, it would be a better computer for the editing so I could, you know, it would be faster. This one tends to, uh, unfortunately, sometimes if I'm doing like the longer videos, the video actually becomes very choppy because it can't handle it so something down the road but this kind of showed me that yes maybe this would be a good idea to have that set up just make sure that at least if something like this would happen again i'm covered so i am working on that i came up with five different tiers i've literally obsessed about this i looked at in the the original video i shot to announce it when people first kind of convinced me to do it and then obviously it didn't work because i never put it up but i'm completely bald it was during the summer months i think it was two years ago or a year and a half ago at least i think we're going on two years and I basically was trying to wrestle with the tier part because I want people to feel like they get something out of it. I, I, I'm still uncomfortable, would be the word, uh, taking money from anybody. I mean, even now I get sent free things every once, once in a while and I feel bad, like, you don't have to do that, I'll buy it. You know, I, I have people, you know, ask me if they can send stuff. I'm like, no, please just let me pay for it. It's, I have no problem there. But with the computer breaking down and stuff and the fact that I did promise I'd do this, the goal is to move ahead and do a Patreon page so people who really want to contribute can. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And quite frankly, nobody should feel like they have to contribute. If you want to spend your money on spiders, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing regardless if I'm getting paid or not. This is not a pay thing. This is not supposed to be a job. I'm not doing this to make money. But... I do understand that people feel very strongly that they'd like to give back and they get kind of frustrated with me when I won't give them an address to send stuff to or won't open up a Patreon page or won't monetize videos. So it is what it is. I'm going to go ahead. I'll get it going. I'll probably tell everybody it's up there and just let it sit. And if people want to contribute, fine. If they don't, I don't blame you one bit. But the one thing I will never, ever, ever, ever do is monetize the videos. I, that's not the point. I want people to get to them quickly. I don't want a bunch of ads on them. It seems like YouTube's gone crazy with the ads. Sometimes when I'm working, I'll put on YouTube for you know music videos and stuff in the background. And now some of them have like two ads and ads in the middle. And it's like, forget it. So I'm never doing the monetization. I'm not in this to make money off of it. But this with... The computer breaking down and with the stuff I'd like to do with the bioactive enclosures, it's I've got so many ideas for things I'd like to do with these things. And moving ahead, I think what I want to do is spend more time for folks because there's a lot of interest from many of you who listen and watch my videos. There's a lot of interest in this bioactive stuff. I think it's been poo-pooed in many public forums and message boards for years. People are like, it's a waste of time. Why bother doing it? It doesn't make any sense. But I will tell you, now that I'm doing it, I am absolutely loving it. And for folks who have spent some time in the hobby that maybe have their collection established and are looking to do something a little new, a new facet of the hobby, it's it's been amazing for me, honestly. And so I think a lot of people are interested in this and moving ahead. I have seen some of the, the builds people can make with these, and they are astoundingly beautiful. Like, I've, it's been... T- I've been taking notes, I've been sketching some ideas I have with hanging plants and whatnot for some of the Pisolotheria species, but that's all going to cost money. So right now, it's I've been picking up a little stuff here and there each payday. I, I pick up a little more stuff and I'm kind of banking it so that I can do a big push. I have a bunch of plants on my dinner table and again, love you Billy for letting putting up with all my stuff. Every time we go to eat now, I have to move the plants because there's a nice sunny spot on my table. So I put the plants on the table, they get some sun, but then we go to eat and I have to move them. So I have the plants, I have a bunch of substrate, all the fixings to do the bioactive enclosures, but now I want to do some stuff with backgrounds, with you know different, I want to do some fossorial ones. 
I want to do some larger arboreal cages. So this is something that, again, is going to take money. So moving ahead, that's probably what, if I get anything from the Patreon, I'm not expecting much. And I almost kind of hope I don't get anything. That won't be awkward for me. But that's what I will be putting stuff towards because I do think I'm going to continue, obviously, with all the beginner information I have. But the bioactive stuff is obviously more of an advanced type thing. I'm not to say beginners can't do it. But it's something that people should probably try after they have their basic husbandry done. You need to know what your spider needs before you can start experimenting with plants and watering the plants. Because I will say it is a, it's it's a bit tricky when you get into the different care requirements for the plants and trying to match them up with the species of spider. So something to think about. But again, moving ahead, I would like to kind of do the dual layer where we do the beginner stuff. And then I start doing more advanced stuff with some of these builds. And I have some wonderful ideas that I think people would really appreciate. So... That's where we're headed with that. I will do the Patreon page. I will put it up. You're not going to hear much about it. It'll probably be in the link for my podcast. It'll probably be in the link for my YouTube page. I'll do a thing up on Facebook where I basically tell everybody how uncomfortable I am with this, and then we'll go from there. And speaking of the bioactives, I've had a question from a couple people asking if I had any preferences for certain species of plants that are working well for me to start off, and I do. Um, I've been buying a lot of different types of plants to experiment with. Uh, The ones that I'm having terrible... Uh, time with right now are the peperomia. I recently ordered some peperomia from Any Herp, and I still have yet to post that review up because here's what happened. I basically did a whole Any Herp unboxing, set up a cage with their the uh, BioDude substrate and some Any Herp plants because it was too cold to ship from BioDude, and Any Herp is in my state, so we picked up the plants from there. I set up a, a an arboreal enclosure with peperomia, wandering Jew. Sp- put it on the shelf, let it sit and acclimate for a month. And it was doing great for about a month. And then I noticed one of the peperomia, there were two different stalks I planted in there. One of them started to die off. I'm like, okay, well, that one's not doing well, but the other one's doing fine. So I clipped that one off, got it out of there. Well, then the other one died. So then what I was left with was an enclosure missing the main plant. And I was about to do the rehousing, but we didn't want to do that. So this, unfortunately, this YouTube video is yet to appear. Hopefully we'll get something in it today. I did take the peperomia out and plant another peperomia that had been sitting on my dinner table, kind of growing and doing well. So we'll see how that one goes. But if anybody, again, anybody that's worked with this plant, I'm if, if this one doesn't work out, they're basically going to become house, house plants because I bought a bunch of them. I have, I think, five so far. I like the way they look, but I'm having a difficult time getting the conditions right inside the aquarium or in the, the terrarium. So peperomia is one I love the look of, but I'm a little sure of. I also have a species of peperomia in with my Pisolotheria metallica communal, and that one's was doing great. My dinner table was sprouting new leaves and growth, and, and now it's looking a little droopy and a little sad. So peperomia off my list. Golden pathos, oh my lord, that stuff is amazing. It grows quick. I get the, uh, I bought two plants from any harp, and I got one plant from it was BioDude. All three of them are doing fantastically. I've already had to trim one, and it's only been in there for about maybe just shy of two months or so. So the Golden Pathos looks fantastic, spreads like a weed, grows kind of like a vine, but the, the branches of the vine grow upwards, so it you know can really fill an enclosure, and it just relatively inexpensive and easy to come by. So anybody that's looking to start with something simple, I would check out the Golden Pathos or Yeah, Pothos, I believe it is. And then the other one that I'm absolutely loving, the Wandering Jew, 
gorgeous plant. The undersides of the leaves are purple. The tops are green with sprinkles of silver streaks on them. You have to, it, it looks fake. It literally looks fake. But again, grow like weeds. Seem to do well in a variety of conditions. Every enclosure I got them in, they're doing well. They grow very quickly. You can plant them by snipping them off and then basically planting the, the clippings in water or using I didn't even use root hormones for the first one. I just basically stuck them in dirt and planted them out and they did great. And right now, I think I started off, I bought three plants total. And now because of the clippings, I have about eight or nine. And it doesn't get any better than that. So it's something that you can pretty much, you know, you, you buy a couple of them, you grow them out, you clip them off, you grow up more plants to put in more enclosures. It doesn't get any better than that. So Wandering Jews, definitely uh, on, on my list is top. And I like to put two plants in. So the Wandering Jews are a little thinner, a little less full. So if you just put one in, it's like a nice little accent. And then the other one I use, I believe it's called the Arrowhead Plant gorgeous plant growing like a weed this is another one that's done great from day one no issues whatsoever um seems to do well and um, the conditions i have it in now is moist i let the substrate dry out it's a little moist on the bottom and then i make it rain every once in a while in there that one's doing great as well it's full it's it's a lot more bushy compared to the other two i mentioned and very hardy which i think is going to be key for me because not doing particularly well keeping some of them i'm looking at you peperomia alive so Again, my goal is when all this is when I when I feel like I've got a good grip on these and it's been several months and the plants are all doing well and things are under control. What I will do is a tutorial on how to set one up it on the podcast and probably on my YouTube page. Just from my experience, there are people out there that are a heck of a lot more experienced than uh, at this than me. My buddy Ryan Mack, I've been bouncing questions off him right and left. He's been doing these for I believe a couple of years now and has done a lot of experimentation on the different plants and the setups. And he's been a wealth of information. So Ryan, if you listen to this one, thanks as always. I do totally appreciate it because I feel like I'm flying blind here sometimes, but you make things so easy to understand as far as the plants are concerned. But I would like to put together some tutorial just from my perspective. Again, not an expert at this at all. This is brand new to me. But I am finding some plants that will work for somebody that's just new to it like myself or like somebody that's, you know, maybe got a collection at home. They're watching what I'm doing. Would love to try some of this out. I have some suggestions. So we'll go from there. And moving ahead, I will also be trying out some different types of enclosures as far as things that might make for good bioactives. Because I know, unfortunately, one of the main expenses with doing the bioactive enclosures is the fact that the enclosures themselves are quite expensive. It's You can do them with Sterilite. Uh, my buddy Ryan, again, was showing me some tricks for it to, to make a you know a cheap, inexpensive bioactive. But I think for a lot of people, it's about the presentation. They want to do something that's really pretty. So we'll go over some of the things there because I am going to try some out. And I have a couple other aquariums that I bought online that are a little cheaper than some of the Exoterras. For example, the Critter Keepers, the Extra Large Critter Keepers could definitely work. Uh, there's just a lot out there that people could use. So moving ahead, we will be looking at that. So on to the next part of this podcast. One of the things I'd like to do is feature some species that uh, you don't hear about very much in the hobby and ones that people may overlook. And the one we are going to do today is one that I really, really like. I'm going to click over here to my notes. The Crypsodromus species Costa Rica or Crypsodomus species, I believe it's called Black Amelia. And the reason they call it Black Amelia is it kind of looks like a B. Amelia, Brachypelma Amelia. But I picked up mine as a sling, I believe at the time it was about three quarters of an inch or so, um, maybe about a half an inch, a small little sling. Kept them like I would most slings. In in this case, it was in a larger dram bottle. And of course, like most slings, it did burrow. And that's, again, I, I feel like sometimes with my care 
requirements on repetitive, that's because most tarantula slings do the same thing. The majority of them are going to dig. That's what they would do in the wild to avoid prey and not be out in the open, get picked off. So this shouldn't come as a shock to anybody that listens to my stuff. Slings will burrow. So we put them in one of those little dram bottles. It, it burrowed. It ate very, very well. And this is the thing. Sometimes I pick up some of these more obscure species and the, the eating habits aren't particularly great or they're a little, you know, it's a little tough to get a read on them. And I think part of it's just that uncertainty where a lot of the species you get, you can hop online and find a lot of information on it. You can hop on the boards, you can hop on Facebook and find somebody that's kept them that can give you hands-on information with them. With species that you don't hear a lot about, that can be a little more difficult to come by. And it was the case with these guys. I kind of had to read about where they came from and try to emulate. So definitely moist substrate to start off. They will burrow. They were great. Great eaters. I was feeding my guys two or three times a week, and I did get these guys during the winter months. So this was one of the species I did keep in my quote-unquote uh, tarantula nursery, which is a larger plastic container. I put ventilation holes around it, and I take all my smaller sling containers, whether they be the you know the Amac box type or the dram vials, and I put them in there around the entire enclosure, and then I put a big open thing of water in the middle. It can sometimes be a 16-ounce deli cup. I have another water dish, of like an old dog wa- or snake water dish I have that I fill up with water. And basically what that does is when the air dries out during the wintertime, when the furnace is on, this allows for the slings to stay moist. It doesn't evaporate as quickly. Because if you take one of these dram bottles, even if you fill the bottom, you know, you pour some water down the side like we do carefully, take an eyedropper or a pipette, and pour some water down the side so those bottom layers get moist. When it gets particularly dry in your home, watch how quickly that dries out. You can almost watch that water line go down, you know, over a course of a couple days. So I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble with the slings over the wintertime is they underestimate how quickly they can dry out, how quickly their enclosure can dry out, and how quickly they, in effect, dry out. So did keep it moist. These guys grew fairly fast, um... Right now, I think I picked these guys up, I want to say October of 2017, and right now mine's about just over three inches long or so, so decent size. It took a little while to get going, but I will say they they molted you know regularly and put on a decent amount of size with each molt i would say probably medium size growth rate it's tough sometimes because i have species that you know for mictopus for example that will grow super fast very very quickly and i have other species that will take much longer and then you have like the brockies that seem to be there almost seems to be a it needs to be a separate scale for some of the brachypelma species i mean i have my brachypelma erratum that has taken about five years to reach around three inches now. It's probably about the same size as my Crypsodromus species Panama. And so that that is glacially slow-growing pace. With these guys, I would say probably medium pace. But now that mine, mine right now is just molted again. She's about probably just over three inches or so. Gorgeous little spider. Kind of a reddish brown carapace, brown to black, like grayish smoky black legs and bold sits right out in the open. It's, it's she's a gorgeous spider. Reminds me like I hate to put it this way because it makes it sound like it's not as pretty as it is, but it's almost reminds me of like a, a washed out bumba cabocla. Like if you took a lot of times you'll see people take pictures with no flashes and bad lighting and you go, "Oh, that's what they really look like without the light on." Kind of like that. And again, people that have them, hopefully I'm not far you look not shaking your head going, "What in God's name is he talking about?" But, but with the lighter reddish brown carapace and the le- the darker legs, that's kind of what it reminds me of. But a very unique looking spider. And again, I like the fact that once it hit about an inch and a half or so, it was always out in the open. It abandoned its burrow. I did give it enough substrate to burrow in. Basically, I moved moved it 
from the original dram enclosure into one of those M-Design stackable kitchen pantry things I get. They're the little hinged boxes. They're crystal clear. They run about six and a half by five and a half by three and three quarters inches, I think. So I like them for like larger slings to juveniles, probably around a quart or so. I don't know my measure, my calculations could be off there, but right around a quart size. And the nice thing is they're very stackable. They're crystal clear. They're easily ventilated with the Dremel tool. The one thing you got to watch out for is there is a gap by the hinges. So when you look at the back of them with the hinges, you need to cover up that gap with either some silicone or you can take tape, just put a piece on the inside and then a piece on the outside to make sure it's not sticky. But besides that, they make fantastic enclosures. I have I think about 15, they come in packs of three for like 20 bucks or 15 or 15 to 20 bucks if you look on Amazon and they're on a shelf with a bunch of my larger slings and juveniles in it and they just look fantastic. So she went into, I'm saying she, I'm not sure what it is, went into one of these at about an inch and a half or so. She did a little digging underneath her cork bark, but for the most part has been right out in the open and these guys are voracious hunters. It's one of the cool things about them. Some of these species I get are a little coy. If you drop a, a roach in or or a cricket, she will sprint right across the cage and grab it up. And the only time she hasn't eaten is when she's been in primo. And I will say one of the things I've noticed with these guys is when they go into primo, they're a little less chubby, for lack of a better term, than some of my other species. So this one will remind you of a brachypelma species. So you're going to expect that big bloated booty when it's getting ready to molt, because the brachys can really put on some size when they're there, you know, before the molts. However, hers doesn't get nearly as big. So I've had a couple instances where I've dropped in crickets and she's not eating. I'm like, uh oh, what's going on now? She did not look like she was ready to molt. She looked very proportionate. So that's something to keep in mind if you pick these guys up, that don't be surprised if they suddenly go off feed. They don't quite look as swollen as most species would for a molt, but then they'll molt and they're perfectly fine. So she did just molt again. That's why she's now around three and a quarter inch or so. And the next thing I will be putting her into is I kind of have a decision to make she's a little big for the M design kitchen pantry one I've got her in now that not totally cramped but I'd like to get her into something bigger so she's either going to go into one of the Sistema the 101 ounce Sistemas I use I picked them up off of Amazon. I think they're about seven or eight bucks, and people have told me that you can find them at, I think, TJ Maxx. Thanks for whoever gave me that tip. I have not been there yet. I haven't bought any recently, but they're, again, easily ventilated. They're a little bit milky, but they don't seem to look as bad as a Sterilite to me, and they're stackable. They clip. They secure very well, and they're really good for those larger juveniles. I've kind of, this is, Billy and I just did a huge, this weekend went through the our garage that looked like an episode of Hoarders, and a lot of what I ended up recycling is a lot of my old Sterilite containers because over the years I've tried just about every type of container you can think of to see if it would make for a good enclosure and some worked, some didn't, some worked for a little while but then I found things that I like better. So now for my juveniles I'm on to the, the Sistema, I really like them. So basically she'll either go into one of those or I may wait for her to molt again and I will put her into one of the other InterDesign or M-Design makes these two things that are for high heel shoes and again crystal clear hinge, they're uh, seven and a quarter by 12 and a half by 7 inches or so and I use those for some of my smaller adult species or young adults they work great the only issue is they don't latch but they're very easy to it's easy to rig something up to make them latch or what I've got is they all slide onto a shelf so I have a row of I think it's 6 six by 2 so two rows of 6 and then I have a board that goes across the top that basically goes between the tops of the containers and the shelf so it keeps them trapped down. So all I do is remove that board when I need to work with them, pull the enclosures out and work with them, and it makes it so none of them can get out. But those work great. So 
And she may just go right into that. It might be a little bit big for her to start, but again, she'll settle down in a corner or whatnot and should be fine. But I do like those enclosures for the smaller species. I have a couple in my D. Uh, the Lictophelli diamantiensis is in one, and she looks amazing. So, And they just look so nice on the shelf. So we may jump her right to that. But again, it's there's no – a lot of people will contact me about specific cage sizes for certain specimens, and there's really no magic number. Once they get out of the sling stage, you can put them in something a little bit larger. You can – a lot of people will skip that juvenile stage, put them into adult enclosure. I tend – I still, for most of them, will do a juvenile enclosure, juvenile young adult enclosure, and then into the adult enclosure – but there's no real magic number. I can't really throw out this is the exact dimension you need for the species. It depends on the species. depends on whether they're fossorial, arboreal, terrestrial. A lot of things come into play. People will skip. So, again, these are just basically guidelines or, you know, an example from what I use. So, anyway, the Crypsodroma species pan mob, wonderful spider. They are pretty pricey. So, these are ones that... The slings can run you around 90 bucks or so. The well-started slings, anywhere between 75 and probably 95, depending on the size of the sling, because they are rather rare. Unfortunately, they are not blue, and it seems like the, the people are more likely to spend that amount of money on a blue spider than one that maybe has earthy tones, which is a shame because I do think the earthy tone ones are just as beautiful in many respects. So I do think these guys are going to go overlooked. But if you're looking to spend a little money and have something special in your collection that other people don't have, something unique, this is a spider that people should check out. And again, mine has been a great eater, very hardy. Uh, a note on the moisture, I do keep part of the substrate moist at all times. I let it dry out a little bit in between. So I wouldn't say the care is particularly difficult for these guys. And I've seen no aggressiveness. I hate using that term. We'll say defensiveness i can't believe i just used aggressive defensiveness in terms of their temperament i have no hairs kicked at me they haven't i haven't had any threat postures little bit skittish sometimes but nothing that we're not even talking about like in a level we covered the gbb last week nothing like that just occasionally if they get started they'll move today i took opened up her enclosure to get a picture of her she was sitting right out in the open she just kind of uh, hunkered down a little bit allowed me to take a bunch of pictures didn't even move so really cool spider one that i think unfortunately probably won't get established in the u.s hobby because they're going to get overlooked but i would encourage people and that's one of the things i want to start doing with the podcast my videos is kind of encourage people to try some of these spiders that they may not give looks to ordinarily some of the ones that you know we we get many species that will come in a hobby suddenly there'll be a bunch of slings that somebody will pick up from overseas uh, those sell out and then you never see them again it's kind of a shame because i think we miss out on some really cool spiders so crypsodromus species panama or crypsodomus species black amelia is the other nickname i love that nickname it just reminds me of black dolly or something it's just such a cool name but really cool spider one that i would encourage people if you've got the extra money again they're pricey definitely check them out and give them a try and while talking about this topic, it kind of reminded me of something else that I wanted to cover today because I've gotten quite a few emails over the course of the winter, and that is slings. I've done a two videos on sling care. I have an article on sling care, which I tried to basically pour everything out that I've learned about keeping, you know, taking care of slings over the years. I know how scary it can be for people who are just getting into the hobby or just getting their first sling. It's very intimidating. But one of the things that has come out over the course of the winter is I've had several people, let's say three, I think it might have been four, but we'll go three, I don't want to exaggerate. Three people come to me with massive sling losses. So people that had bought a bunch of slings around the fall and basically by the end of the winter had lost a bunch of them. And one of the questions that came out was, and which I really liked, was what am I doing wrong? 
two of the people, at least, came to me from that angle. One of them was apparently upset because people online told them that if you lose this many slings, then you're doing something wrong. And they said, no, they're just slings. That happens. They die. And this brings up a tricky area because I think a lot of times we don't want people to think slings are difficult because we want people getting slings in the hobby. We want them raising them up. It's fun. I think it's one of the most rewarding things I ever did. I mean, I have the first two slings I ever raised up are healthy adults now. One of them's uh, one of my early slings has already been bred and, and had offspring of her own. So I do think it's an, an integral part of the hobby that raising slings, raising these spiders from babies. I think a lot of us get into the hobby. We grab adults first because we want those big, beautiful tarantulas to show off the people. Slings just aren't nearly as impressive, unfortunately. But then we work back to, wait a minute, I want to grow them up. So we do want people getting them. But are slings more delicate than their adult and juvenile counterparts? Yes, they absolutely are. That can't be discounted. But does that mean you should expect to lose a lot of slings? That that should be an expectation that if I start buying, we'll put it this way, if I buy 10 slings, then I should expect to lose, you know, four or five of them. No, I don't think that should be an expectation. Are you going to have mysterious sling deaths? Yes, you are. I do believe that, you know, if the spider has 300, we'll say 300 slings, 300 offspring, you have to figure in nature, some of those are going to get picked off, some of them are going to die because of the elements, and they're going to be weak ones. There's like, I've raised animals my entire life, I grew up on a farm, and you always had the, you know, the quintessential runts, the animals that were born that were smaller than the other animals, that weren't growing as quickly, that weren't uh, eating as well, and those were the ones that in the wild would have been picked off probably by predators a lot quicker than the other ones. It's almost, it's sad, but it's almost like they're there to kind of, you know, if a predator comes, the little ones are going to get eaten, it's going to allow the bigger ones to live. So that's always something that's been present in the animal kingdom, the fact that we're going to have animals that are run, so ones aren't going to survive. So is it possible to get a sling and have it be weak? Yes, I, you know, I think it happens at times, but should we get to a point where we buy a bunch of slings, we lose a bunch of them, go, oh, well, that's what happens, slings die. No, and never. And anybody that's heard, you know, I did a whole podcast, and if you're just joining me for the first time, there is, I did a whole podcast on deaths of tarantulas and how I treat them, and I think some people are like, think I give them, I take them a little more seriously than maybe some do, because for me, if something dies, I want to see if there's something to be gleaned from it. Did I screw up? Is there a husbandry mistake that I made on my end that led to this? I have a very difficult time just going, oh, well, you know, that's happened. That, that happens, they die. That's that's me personally. I know other people that will try to exhaust every possibility that could have caused it, and they move on much more quickly, which is fine, but I do think when something dies, you do, as a responsible keeper, have an obligation to try to go through and make sure it was nothing you did on your end. Sometimes it's, you know, I had the situation last winter, which is this is like the anniversary of the end of it, where we finally figured out what was going on, where I ended up using a bag of Agway topsoil that was either contaminated with herbicide or for something in that topsoil killed a lot of animals. I mean, it was... At last count, I think it might have been, it could have been over 20 because uh, one of the things I haven't mentioned was my assassin bugs, which I had a healthy colony of assassin bugs going. I had some adults, I had some juveniles, I had a bunch of little babies, and I rehoused them all on the substrate. And within a week, the majority of them were dead. I pulled a few of them out, kept them on something else, but they never molted again. They never ate, they ate, never molted again, and they were dead. So it basically wiped out my colonies of assassin bugs, lots of spiders. It was horrendous. Now, if I had just written this off as, well, well, things die, I never would have gotten the root of the problem. I went nuts trying to figure out what was going on with these because you lose a couple, 
you start to worry, you start losing that many, something's seriously wrong. So applying this to slings, if I buy 10 slings in October and by April, a good chunk of those slings are dead. It's time to look at what you're doing, what you could be doing wrong. And I think in many cases, most of these issues I've heard from people, it's usually the smaller slings, the ones that are like, you know, a quarter inch. I think people underestimate how tiny those are. And when people talk about dropping slings in adult enclosures, this is why I bristle. Because if you've seen a one quarter inch sling, it's tough to keep track of a quarter inch sling in a little dram bottle of dirt. It's ridiculously difficult to spot them. So if you put them in something even bigger, it's even more difficult. So I think part of the problem with the wintertime deaths, and again, there was at least three people over the course of the winter that emailed me with multiple deaths and slings. And I think part of the problem is that we tend to underestimate just how dry the air gets in our house during the wintertime, the winter months when the heat's running, whether it be furnace, if you're running a fireplace, that really dries things out. If you're using a space heater, again, really dries things out. We need to kind of keep track of that. And I think what ends up happening, again, I mentioned this earlier, when you get those little dram bottles, you can go ahead, like I have a bunch of Afana Pelma species that are really tiny now. I think they're all about a half inch, but when I got them, they were super tiny. You could barely spot them. I had them in little dram bottles. And I watched one day, I went in and I took my little pipette and I dribbled the water into the side, basically moistened down the bottom, maybe about three quarters of an inch of substrate. Well, within three days, it was bone dry. It doesn't take long for them to dry out. And when that substrate dries out, that means the air inside that enclosure is all dried out. And it means you could have a spider that basically dehydrates and dies very, very quickly. And I think that is a big part of it. And that's something you need to spend extra care with, with the tiny slings, making sure they stay hydrated, making sure those enclosures, those little dram bottles or whatever you have them in don't dry out. And I think where some spiders you can kind of leave, you know, I know I have spiders I could probably leave there for a month, never check on them, they'd be perfectly fine. But with slings, you need to check on them more often. That's one of the reasons I have a more aggressive feeding schedule with my slings. A, I want to grow them out of that stage faster. But B, every time I go into that enclosure, I'm able to monitor what's going on. Is it drying out? Is it in pre-mold? Has it sealed itself up? I'm just able to monitor them better. And especially the winter time when things are going to dry out much more quickly, you want to be checking on them more often than not. So that's one of the reasons, again, back to that nursery idea. Anybody that's going to be getting a lot of slings right before the winter, or even if you know if you picked a lot of slings up during the summer, they're still tiny, and you're moving into the wintertime, I do encourage you to create ahead of time one of those nurseries. It's I, I think it saved my butt many, many times. I ended up picking up, oh God, it was like close to 30 slings one, right before one winter, right around October, and I had them all in one of these things, and I had no issues with the slings dying out mysteriously because it, they were kept hydrated. I do think that's a big problem. And then conversely, one of the things to think about is when summer comes, if you're in one of those areas where it's super humid, you don't want to overdo it with the moisture. I did have somebody last year that emailed me a picture. They said they lost a bunch of slings. It was in the middle of the summer. The heat wasn't too, too bad in the room. But when they sent me the photographs, it was obvious that the substrate had been moistened to the point where it was swampy. There was condensation inside the enclosures. There wasn't a lot of ventilation. That's one of the things, if you use the dram bottles, it can be difficult getting cross ventilation. A lot of people will poke little holes in the top and it can become very stuffy in there. And what happened is it looks like they'd created just bad fetid conditions for these spiders to live in. And he'd probably lost some because of the fact that it was probably close to 100% humidity in there and pretty nasty. So you need to, on the two extremes, wintertime, you need to make sure that they're well hydrated using a nursery, you know, a big plastic container with an open dish of water in the middle that will make sure that the inside at least doesn't dry out too much. And then in the summertime, 
make sure there's a good airflow. A lot of people put a fan in their tarantula room because those rooms, I know mine, it can heat up a little bit. It's stuffy. I've got the main window is actually blocked off right now because I don't want the sun coming in and baking them. In the wintertime, it can be drafty. So there's, I basically will open one of the doors and put a fan there, get some airflow in there. But you want to make sure those cages don't get too stuffy. Again, not to overcomplicate. This isn't a really complicated thing, but just think in terms of winter, air is dry, you need more moisture. Summer, when the air is moist, you don't want to overdo it with the moisture because that could lead to dead slings too. So just something to think about for anybody that, you know, if you have a lot of sling deaths, yes, they can happen. Yes, you have a situation where slings are a little less sturdy and hardy than their larger counterparts. However, that usually just means that they're more susceptible to husbandry issues. For example, letting the cages dry out. So so some things to keep in mind for those of you that are moving into the sling stage. Can you expect mysterious deaths? They happen to all of us, yes, but it shouldn't be the majority. It shouldn't be a vast quantity. You shouldn't be looking at 33% mortality rate with your slings. When that happens, something is usually wrong and it's time to kind of ask people or try to do some troubleshooting and figure out what's going on. All right, so that should about do it for this episode. Kind of a potpourri of different things there if this were a Jeopardy category. But again, I really wanted to cover the stuff that happened with the computer, the Patreon stuff. Again, still don't feel comfortable about it. I just had it up again this morning and it's going to take a lot to pull the trigger on that one. But it is set up and ready to go, so we'll see. And then talk a little bit about some species. And that's something going ahead that I want to do as I'm doing some of these care guides for the different husbandry information for some of these species. It's going to some of the ones I keep that are a bit more obscure that aren't as popular and try to get some love for them and maybe get some people trying them out. And then again, just going over the slings, the fact that, yes, you can expect some slings to die. No, there shouldn't be a whole bunch of them dying. That means usually they need to kind of re-examine what's going on, try to figure out if there might be an issue on your end, a husbandry issue that's causing the deaths. So as always, you can find me on YouTube under Tom's Big Spiders. I do a lot of videos there and Unfortunately, with this venue, it's you don't have the visuals to go along with it. So anybody that's looking to see some of the visuals of the spiders that I'm talking about, feel free to visit there. I have the website, tomsbigspiders.com. And, of course, I have Facebook, which I was trying to be a little more active on this week, but kind of got shut down a bit when my computer went down. But I have been answering messages a little more quickly, so hopefully get back to that. So, as always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys all next time.